Okay, now I'm ready. Okay, ready? Yep. Yep. Three, two, one, go. Do you have the numbers still? No. Eight one five. I closed it. Give me a second. Eight one six. Eight. Oh, Kansas City. How'd you know that was Kansas City? Yeah, you know your area. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Hello? Hello, is it Derek? Yes. Yeah, Derek uh, Johnson? Derek oh, Derek and Dallas. Derek. Fantastic. Welcome to the speech, guys. Derek and Dallas. I'm Mike. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm the guy who gave Ross a concussion once, uh, driving him into a guardrail. <laughs> I'm the guy who failed Ross out of prison. Oh, wait, they wasn't supposed to know that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so... Derek is my brother. Why, why don't Derek? Why don't Derek introduce himself? Let's hear hear something from him. Okay, go ahead, Derek. Yes, I, I am uh, Ross's brother-in-law. So I'm married to uh, Julianne's sister Tracy. We live in Kansas City, and uh, so Ross, I gotta tell you, uh, when you texted me earlier today, I had to go in. I threw my uh, Illini shirt on. Channel my inner uh, Ross Johnson there, so forgot to tell you it's straight audio though. But you look good, I bet. I was thinking, I was like, I figured most of the guys on the call are all U of I and I I L L. That's right. That's right. Matt, Matt, that's a weird way to to spell Bradley, guys. (laughs) Yeah, Matt probably can't even spell Illinois. Derek, so, it's great to have you on the show. You know, I've always felt I'm in St. Louis, basically, the gateway okay. to the West. I've always yeah. felt Kansas City is honestly more the gateway to the West because Missouri, you're like still sort of Midwest, you know, farmland. Yeah. But once once you leave Kansas City suburbs, it's like the Wild West. Yeah, you, yeah. I just drove out to Colorado, man. And once you get a little west of uh, Kansas City, there, you know, you hit the what the Flint Hills a little bit and uh, eastern Kansas. But after that, it's, it's you're out west there. Yeah. What is Colorado like? An hour away. <laughs> <laughs> what are your favorite two things about Kansas City? Oh well, um, I love uh, the barbecue. Mm. Um, yeah, barbecue's great. And yeah. I, feel, I, I like the barbecue chips. Yeah, you like barbecue chips. Yep. Barbecue <laughs> chips are good. Uh, <laughs> what do you, do you uh, work at Chuck E. Cheese or something? Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'd say it's, it's got to be the barbecue and the people. I feel like uh, oh. while our crime rate might be climbing, I still feel like for the most part people are. <laughs> People are tired. Yeah, there's still a chance. So, yeah, chips are good. So we won't keep you too long. Real quick, have you ever listened to an episode of the Speech Guys? Yeah. Well, what was the episode? Uh, Well, the first episode that was like years ago. I don't know how many years you guys have been doing this, but you guys have quite the lineup. Yeah, this is season three. Season three, we're Mm -hmm. on. Yeah, so I mean, you guys are you guys are putting out some content there. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the first one I listened to. I can't remember the first one I listened to, but 
I, I do appreciate uh, your guys' uh, uh, the range you guys kind of cover there. Because, you know, typically when you're thinking of speeches, you're like kind of the raw, raw ones, right? But uh, you guys uh, mix it up and have a lot of good different uh, series you cover there. So, yeah, I, I love that. I love the speeches about death, about loss and love. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really I like to bring myself down low. So that then yeah. my average life brings me up. That's Amen. How you... <laughs> yeah. What What about a speech from your life, like your best man speech at your wedding? How How is that? Is that one the speech guy should cover one day? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. So uh, my my uh, the speech was probably a little. Uh, well, non-traditional. I had, so I had two best men. So one was like, uh, you know, uh, obviously they're both good buddies of mine. But one was, you know, hey, he's going to be a missionary in the Philippines. You know, I didn't have to worry about him on the speech, right? And then my other buddy, uh, who was kind of like the co-best man, you know, he's kind of a loose cannon. So <laughs> I had speech duties covered for the, you know, the missionary friend. And he, was, you know, he, you know, did a great job and, all that and then he kind of went uh he kind of went to hand me the mic and then my other buddy who's a loose cannon grabbed it and i just kind of buckled up and was along for the ride and uh got married and still married so it all (laughs) all went down that day but i was a little nervous there so but uh i don't think i don't think my like the best man at my wedding did uh did quite as good of a job as as ross's uh best man there i think rob uh, uh killed it at, at ross i tried to return the favor at his um the night we had a little party the night before his ordination and i screwed up i got nervous and i i screwed oh, okay. up and i don't remember what i said but i th- I, I called him ross literally it was something like that <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's good. I never heard that story. That's yeah. awesome. I had a bourbon in my hand, and I think I made a funny joke about I don't know needing another one or something, or maybe had too Is many. Is that speech recorded anywhere? We could uh, analyze that one. Or, uh... I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there sounds like you had sounds like you had one good best man speech, one mediocre. You had a forgettable speech guys experience. Let's jump to this episode. Nelson Mandela, second installment in our speeches by prisoner series. Anything uh you remember in particular about Nelson Mandela from uh from grade school that you uh might pass on to your children at bedtime? Oh man. Uh Ross, I wish you would have briefed me on what the, what the uh, time Got to put you on the uh, spot. You know, I, yeah, when you say Nelson Mandela, I think of uh, I think of Morgan Freeman. Yeah. He was not yeah, one uh, of the guys Rocky Box. I know it sounds uh, like that name. Yeah. Morgan Freeman yeah, played him in the Matt Damon film Invictus, I believe. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, Invictus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's hope your uh, hope your introduction of us is better than your memories of speeches and Nelson Mandela. Okay, wait, hold on. Dad's doing show business. This is show business. <laughs> You're right. I'm working here. Go in your room. Go play tractors. 
Okay, we got Derek Johnson introducing <laughs> introducing the show for us. Derek, take us away. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Matty I, Mikey Mike, and Ross the Boss Johnson there. Uh, happy to introduce Season 3, Episode 41. We got Nelson Mandela speech, I'm Prepared to Die speech guys are going to keep this thing off for you. That's great. Okay. Thanks, Let's cue the music. Awesome. When you see the road uh, You know, Michael Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz and Landon Fry are all are all here. It's free. Free. I'm just gonna say it. I've been thinking it for ten minutes. I don't want a podcast here. Oh yeah. Now I've seen the road. Pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy is a gift. Paint sticks to asteroids. We are called to emerge from that default setting of self-involvement. Okay, great introduction by Derek. As he said, Speeches by Prisoners is the second one in our series. Ross is the host. He picked Nelson Mandela. I am prepared to die. Ross, what's briefly the context for the speech? Briefly, why you picked it, why it stuck out to you, and then we'll go ahead and listen to the expert and get our usual first reactions. I'll start with the why I chose the speech, actually. Because um, there's actually not a ton there. I didn't know very much about Nelson Mandela or this. I've never heard this speech before. I just had heard of him. Like very, I was a person knew very little about him. I knew he was in prison for a long time, but he ended up being like a world leader. So just kind of that. That literally is why I started looking at Nelson Mandela speeches. And then this is one of his more famous ones. And when it popped up, I thought it'd be good for discussion. So that's the why. As far as context goes, so Nelson Mandela is from or was from South Africa, and when he was alive, um, the country at the time was under apartheid. I hope I'm saying that correctly. The law, the country was just ran on laws that were very racist against um, the native people, the black people that lived there. I guess the Dutch colonials had been in power for some time, and they made all the rules. So context of the speech, Nelson Mandela was part of a group that was trying to rise up and try to secure rights for his people and yeah, fight against apartheid. And Okay. And it's uh, 1964 when he gives this speech. Um, and this is the tr- at the trial um, right before he is potentially sentenced to death. Obviously, he's not sentenced to death. Um, but he sort of uh, dares he dares the judge to sentence him to death um, based upon his final words, I am prepared to die. So 
Let's go ahead and take a listen to that speech and go from there. We want equal political rights because without them, our disabilities will be permanent. I know this sounds revolutionary to the white in this country because the majority of voters will be Africans. This makes the white man fear democracy. But this fear cannot be allowed to stand in the way of the only solution which will guarantee racial harm and freedom for all. It is not true that the enfranchisement of all will result in racial domination. Political division based on caste is entirely artificial. And when it disappears, so will the domination of one color group by another. The ANC has spent half a century fighting against racialism. When it triumphs, as it certainly must, it will not change that policy. This then is what the ANC is fighting. Our struggle is a truly national one. It is a struggle of the African people inspired by our own suffering and our own experience. It is a struggle for the right to live. During my lifetime, I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination. And I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. All right, there it is. What are your guys' first thoughts? I was going to say a nice little mic drop there at the end. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I suppose like I am prepared to die. Maybe you can call it a cliche. 
in this situation, he was very literally preparing himself to die, or at least potentially face that. So, yeah, as far as what I knew about Nelson Mandela, I mean, I remember when I was probably I don't know, like twelve or eleven years old when you first hear about him, right? As yeah, as the guy who was the primary leader in ending apartheid. Um, and then spent 27 years, I believe, in prison, and then became president. I remember, I just remember thinking something to the effect of like, huh, that's weird. (laughs) And then also like the other layer to apartheid as well. It's, I've always found this just, and even now, like I still find it so bizarre and strange, you know, obviously with racism in the United States, there's a certain amount of... I don't want to say like understandability. That's not the right word, but but it is the reality is it is mostly white people in the United States, right? That's yeah, and so it's understandable how it's a little more understandable how racism can exist, right? It's one larger group, um, you know, to some extent making laws that favor them over another. Versus in South Africa, it's like eight percent white people. Uh, from uh, the Netherlands, mostly, as Ross said, and like 80% blacks and, you know, then filling in some of the other ones with other races of uh, colors. Like, that's crazy. That's, <laughs> that's like a, yeah, interesting anomaly, like how, how that happens. One thing that stuck out to me about the speech, it sort of has an air of, like, Socrates' apologia, Right, the speech that Socrates gave or uh, Plato uh, recorded as best he understood it, I think. Um, when right, Socrates was potentially being sentenced to death as well for preaching this single God in contrast with the plurality of gods that was uh, familiar to the ancient Greece uh, people. Um, right, and the stakes was that he was going to die, but he, potentially, and but he boldly proclaimed what he knew to be true, right? There was something very sort of, that sort of rhymed, I felt, um, with this particular speech there. One other thing that stuck out to me was, it, it was, it was, it was very well contextualized, and what I mean by that is he made several references. It wasn't in the speech excerpt that we just heard, but to these one particular claim that I remember <clears throat> by the white supremacist leaders was that, hey, you got nothing to complain about, black people, because your life is better here than the other countries in Africa, right? And what struck me about Nelson Mandela um, how he responded to that in the speech was that he he recognized the potentiality of that claim that maybe our lives are economically better. And what's rather than simply saying out of hand, that's nonsense because I think that there is there's something to recognize that fact like yeah we are economically better than other African countries as black people in them but that doesn't necessarily make this right and it's something that you don't see like a lot or ever in American political discussion today where you're 
parsing apart a political conversation and saying, yes, this particular thing you say I is true or is partly true, but this particular thing is wrong. And it allows the listener to navigate through your language and content, I think, in a much more rational, measured way, rather than speaking in utter hyperbole just to just to effectively brainwash your listeners, which I think is what uh, various uh, American politicians do today. I mean, he, he was a lawyer. He was educated. So, like, it's, kind of, it's articulate, and I feel like he makes his point. And then there's also the other side. He's just super, like, clearly passionate. So, like, <clears throat> kind of the end, like the I am prepared to die part. So I feel like it was a, yeah, I mean, kind of like Matt said, it's just it's a very heavy end to it. All right, so first thoughts, we all read it. We learned a little bit about Nelson Mandela. Um, I thought it would be interesting to start. One of the parts um, in the speech, again, not what was read, but that kind of jumped out at me in just some context for where it comes from. So Nelson Mandela was part of the African National Congress, which was a ended up being a political party that was obviously opposed to apartheid and um when he later, many years later, becomes president, that's the party he was a part of. So anyway, so they they battled this system that was in place in South Africa for a long time prior to him being in prison. And they started with the, the peaceful, nonviolent, you know, try to work it out type strategy, which I think, at least in my head, that's how I would have pictured Nelson Mandela. And again, I didn't know very much about him. So that's kind of coming from a place of ignorance. But one of the parts that jumped out is the F, the the group actually moved to violence. He breaks down violence into four categories, and he says four forms of this is quote four forms of violence are possible. There is sabotage, there is guerrilla warfare, there is terrorism, and there is open revolution. We chose to adopt the first method and to test it fully before taking any other decision. In the light of our political background, the choice was a logical one. Sabotage did not involve loss of life, and it offered the best hope for future race relations. Bitterness would be kept to a minimum, and if the policy bore fruit, democratic government could become a reality. This is what we felt at the time, and this is what we said in our manifesto, end quote. Yeah, so they started doing sabotage, which I think like some of the examples he gave were like taking out a power plant and kind of like communication lines. So just trying to make things more difficult, like for the government and the ruling powers, as opposed to, you know, like open warfare or something like that. They actually, I mean, admittedly did use violence, um, but in a very chosen particular way. Like, did you guys? Yeah. I mean, my understanding was basically the same as yours, Ross. If, I would have felt very, fairly confident in a multiple choice test, you know, matching Mandela to Gandhi, you know, in terms of his um, uh, political protest style or something. So, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit surprising to learn that he did use violence, but it sounds like it was all, all sabotage. I mean, presumably there's maybe some... Um, incidental loss of life and this or that thing uh that took place i know early on that's what they started with but i mean the this group and the fight against apartheid went on for a long time after he was in prison so i'm not sure i don't know like what steps it took you know 20 years later but at least in the yeah, beginning it was definitely sure. like limited to sabotage yeah and 
Yeah, and I mean, it's it's. I mean, I think the first reactions to this particular idea is it clearly comes off as rational because you have demonstrated <clears throat> as a political group, the ANC, that we're going to go as far as we can for as long as we can. I don't know what over a couple decades, maybe 15 years that we're going to take these nonviolent uh, methods to try to create change and they're not working. So now we're going to move on to physical force and by virtue of our experience as humans, it seems there's basically four categories, which to me, like, yeah, those seem about right. Sabotage, guerrilla, terrorism, open revolution. And they're sort of graded in this hierarchy. Yeah, sabotage is sort of the most menial, if you will. How that comes off, you know, if I were someone who was white and on the fence in South Africa... Like, that could be a tipping point of moving into physical force at that sabotage level. It's like, okay, man, you know, there's clearly something going on here. Maybe I am wrong in thinking this way. So, at that level, like, yeah, it makes sense. It does get into an interesting matrix of moral matrix of, like, sin, right? When you get into sab, right, you're... You're infringing on other people's property, obviously, in sabotage. And so where exactly does that go? I don't, I don't necessarily know, but I am going to add one more thought before I uh, pass on the baton here. I, I have thought occasionally, because Paul, Paul is always coming up in the first reading. Man, he's got a lot of, a lot of podium in the, in the uh, mass readings. And... You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like one of St. Paul's um, letters is something like, if you're a slave, just be a good slave. <laughs> like something like that. Yeah, there, there's some, yeah, there's some stuff to that effect. Um, yeah. Yeah, that like you, it's not your responsibility to completely remake the world. Like you just have yeah, to like, right. live out your, whatever role it is you have. Uh, the most Christian yeah. way possible. Yeah. So, so what I would say to that is like, come on, St. Paul, like easy for you to say you're not a slave. <laughs> and so tying that to this, right, is effectively black people in South Africa were living a kind of slave life, right? So it's like, where, where do you draw the line yeah, in simply saying, like, as as the slave, metaphorically and literally, like, I, I definitely think for sure you do have some right, Christian right, if that's an insert word, R-I-G-H-T, to, to sap, like, because, like, you're not actually owned. That's not like you, you're not actual property of another person. So you do have, like you're not actually sabotaging anything in a sense as a slave. Um, so anyway, I, I think that's enough. So maybe you guys sort of get, get where I'm going with that. Just sort of, yeah, playing with the sort of moral, moral uh, dimension of that sabotage and that violence sort of thing. But those are my, those are my thoughts. 
there is a like a pretty well established moral framework for if there's an unjust law, it would be unjust mm, to yeah. like go along with it. Yeah, I, I feel like it, I mean, it's so maybe to make somewhat of a comparison, I'm sure we'll do more of this later, but like, uh, like Martin Luther King, I know that like the big term was like civil disobedience, civil and that like it's civilized, or that, you know, it's not this this aggressive thing, but at the same time, you're also violating the civic establishment that's that's unjust sabotage seems to be a little bit uh, i mean definitely beyond that um and i think you need to be careful in that if you deem something unjust in a vague sense that sabotage is all can also be vague you know and, and maybe not measured and maybe not productive but at the same time i guess there's also like a just war type of situation here that i would kind of think would be valid to like admit to the the calculus because i mean some of the like just some examples of what of, of oppression that were going on under apartheid i mean i would say relatively light things in terms of segregation of public facilities and events like still really bad but like um there's prohibition of mixed marriages and sexual relationships across racial lines uh there was classification of all citizens into distinct racial groups that had various uh legal weight to different things um, there are mass evictions of blacks as well as other racial groups into segregated communities. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, just interesting that whites were a minority of the population. Um, so it, I would say it's even more so that there's clearly not a democratic outlet <laughs> to, like, enact the uh, the changes you want to see. You know what I mean? Um, so I think all of those things being the case, like, yeah, I mean, there's some pretty serious stuff going on. Um and I think the the serious re- level of response seems somewhat measured, um, even if there is a little bit of like, uh, I don't know, moral vagary in regards to like sabotage in response to that. But yeah, I just think that this idea of kind of when to resort to sabotage is probably really hard because it just seems like, I mean, the world's broken. People do bad things, make bad decisions, there's bad laws. But it just, I don't know, it seems like everybody today is very angry about something. You know, the right is very, like in America, the political right is very angry about um, abortion or, you know, some of the new transgender laws and things. But then the political left is super angry about climate change and racism and things like that. And I think all those things are, all of those things are probably good to have some like the people behind the thoughts behind those things all have legitimacy so i feel like it's just hard to know like at what point have you really exhausted all peaceful means and is it appropriate to move on to you know it would it be unjust to continue to go along with them and so i was trying to just think of my in my own life because like there's bad things going on today but i've never resorted to sabotage either so yeah i just think that that would just be a really hard thing to actually apply as far as at what point am i gonna switch i think my response to that would be okay to put it very simply you said bad things going on today but where do you draw the line with you know violence or something like that a rebellion but i think that you know in your heart that you're really not doing you know everything you absolutely can in order to change right i you know you vote you have a great family you help out in your community 
But let's face it, you're no Nelson Mandela. <laughs> no, none, none of us are, right? But if you were someone like who was a Nelson Mandela, who is going out year after year, day after day, month after month, infusing their community with these political ideas, and still nothing is changing, I think it's a. And you're again, you're doing this for a decade or fifteen years. I think conscience-wise, it's a lot more clear that I've done all I can in order to try to exact change, and nothing's happening, so therefore my next step is this, versus, you know, the um, guy whose garage I drive past every way, every time back from the climbing gym that says Trump won on a 15 by 30 foot banner on his garage, I somehow doubt that he's actually, even though he might disagree with various things, which I also disagree with, I actually doubt that he's doing anything for the country right now other than watching Netflix TV about stupid conspiracy theories, right? There's there's a certain, like, vacuousness vacuity of his conscience there that like there is no way that we're dealing with the same things they're like oh yeah it's time for rebellion <laughs> like okay right after i'm done watching netflix nelson mandela is not watching netflix very true <laughs> nelson mandela is on netflix now <laughs> so and Invictus. <laughs> so I feel like this is a good place to drop this in then, talking about Nelson Mandela and all he did and all that. Um, I also learned, and you guys learned as well, I, based on the comments on the outline. So again, my ignorance, I would have ex- I would have expected him to be a nonviolent Gandhi figure that was just beloved by all world figures, almost like a Mother Teresa. The United States President Ronald Reagan, as well as the United Kingdom Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, condemned Mandela and the ANC as communists and terrorists. I felt that, I don't know, I was pretty shocked when I read that. Yeah, definitely surprised by that, because he, just because any sort of coverage of him and his life has been nothing but glowing. Um, Yeah, no, it just is very odd. Uh, Yeah, just super odd to hear that. Um, It's hard to say, though, I mean... And then I would say this is kind of one in the long line of Cold War mishaps and injustices that the United States has participated in in terms of, uh, yeah, there's just been a lot of really bad regimes the U.S. has supported or propped up or, uh, yeah, used to overthrow various communist leaders in Latin America and um, Southeast Asia. And like, yeah, I mean, it's on one hand, it's not maybe not surprising that this is. Uh, they could kind of interpret this group as that. I guess I, I'm very aware of the fact that the U.S. was very on guard to the fault uh, during the Cold War, um, at odds with just the nothing but glowing coverage of Mandela and his life. Um, because, like, yeah, I think there is some moral complexity to the sabotage stuff. And maybe there was some other stuff that went on while he was in prison that he was not uh, responsible for um, that maybe led to that categorization of of communist or terrorist as well but so to clarify a couple of points um based on what i read 
the Soviet Union was pro-ANC. Um, they were sort of pitted against the um, ruling Dutch people. Um, so that's why there is sort of a natural apprehension of the United States towards the ANC. Nelson Mandela, as I understand it, while he was interested in certain aspects of communism, there was no actual... It, it was how I've heard, how I read it being described. It was the... It was as the United States was also an ally with the Soviet Union in World War II, right? Where it was trying to fight against this common enemy between the Soviet Union and the ANC. So... Yeah, Nelson and Mandela had some interest in communism, right, in terms of this real emphasis of equality, or maybe equity is a better word for it. But he did not like the atheism that was attached to um, communism, because he was, he was sort of a blend of, like, Methodist and um, native African religion. Yeah, so it's yeah, he definitely was not actually communist, I think. I think it's pretty fair to say, but since there was that allyness, um that's why Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher cuz I mean, hey, Rocky hadn't in the communism quite yet. Not so yet. there was still trying to keep keep Soviet Union in place there. Well, I was going to I I know I, I can't remember which of the articles you posted that that I read this, but I know. So at one point, Mandela said something to the effect of like communist. Basically, communists treated them better than the government had. I think just the the this dynamic of like, oh well, if Russia likes them, then we must hate them. <laughs> you know, sort of calculus that that existed. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's it's maybe refreshing that this because there's so much of this that goes on today that's frustrating and irritating. I think back or think about just some of the some of the pushback against uh, like the the more radical forms of feminism um, kind of end up with this sort of like uh, just return to like 1950s, you know, like women stay in the kitchen type of mentality. Um, I'm thinking like Andrew Tate type of like people out there who are like definitely on the fringe, but there seem to be gaining some sort of popularity. Um, and so, yeah, there's the, there's that type of pushback, you know, or like, Oh, the friend or like, this is an enemy, this, you know, this sort of radical form of feminism, maybe therefore like, let's just all, you know, and, and join into these like, yeah, just really bizarre, um, and counterproductive things, you know? And, uh, so, yeah. And then there's like, of course, this is going on. You know, if you look back, this has been this has been going on for like a long time. You know, this dynamic. So maybe it's refreshing that like this isn't entirely new or or uh, like a human dynamic that's that's not one we've had to deal with uh, and have dealt with. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying there, and yeah, I, yeah, that makes sense. I feel like it's hard sometimes, <clears throat> just based on media and stuff obviously to get good concise like what different politicians or people believe or say and with twitter and stuff i mean it's just like impossible to like you know get just the straight narrow like um what person what someone says or thinks but it just kind of makes me wonder a little bit like so if you were 
an American, an average American, you know, when Reagan was president, like just the fact that they're saying these things might make you kind of liable to believe them, especially at Cold War and stuff, right? So you, but, and not that there's a Nelson Mandela right now necessarily, but it just makes you wonder, kind of like Matt said, because this is such a still a prevalent thing, this idea of, you know, you know, putting people as the enemy and how, you know, politicians seem today to, like everybody's there, right? Everybody's kind of grouped together. So, right, if, if Democrats have this idea, you're supposed to dislike it, or if Republicans have this idea, you're supposed to dislike it, or whatever. So it just kind of makes you wonder, like, it's just difficult. Not difficult, but just, yeah, I mean, if there are more people like Nelson Mandela that, you know, in 100 years from now, they'll actually go down as this super impressive figure that, you know, maybe changed the course or did a lot of good for the country. But right now, we see is like, they're seen in a very negative light, if that makes sense. Yeah, okay, so you're asking, is there a Nelson Mandela right now that we don't notice because they're seeing so much in negative yeah, light? I'm not, yeah, I'm not actually asking for the person, more just like playing with the thought of, you know, yeah, yeah, when you hear I, things yeah. about people and stuff, yeah. Well, th I mean, this is a good, good, I think this is a natural segue into the um, question you asked. You already stated this, but uh, I feel like the U.S. has a lot of people who are very angry about various issues. But what is the last time you can think of someone saying, I am prepared to die? Some political or social leader. Yeah, so, I mean, let's sort of use that question to answer what you just entertained. Is there some Nelson Mandela out there that we don't notice because, um, because Ronald Reagan doesn't like them? Yeah, I mean, I'd say... I'd say... <laughs> No, I'll give a very brief answer to give you guys some chance to to jog a little bit. But yeah, I'd I'd say no because the political ethos is feeds off of the medium through which we contain media, i.e., digitally. Right? We we are we are compelled to make decisions based upon just how quickly and how flashy, i.e. how loud and how angry you can make these political sentences come across the, uh, the internet sphere. The, the, pers the politician who is willing to die, literally or metaphorically, to their ego and all the things attached to that, that doesn't sell well on Twitter, right? President Trump is just going to take a big fat dump on them, right? <laughs> and then you have just the <laughs> just the yeah, <laughs> and then the mass of left, the met left which just gobbles you up like a massive glob. Yeah, it's just that yeah, I don't I don't see that individual. I think okay, okay, I think here's a good way to tidy up my thought and be brief. I think those individuals do exist, but they exist in the communities right now. And I think that in the next 10 to 20 years, those individuals are going to begin to make a very profound difference in the political direction, political and social direction of our country. Dang, speech by a prophet right here. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when we did the Speech Guy episode about Speech Mike game? <laughs> so meta. <laughs> you start very meta. 
Yeah, and, and I, I wonder if if an one element why it's so hard to find a modern Nelson is that I suppose like the '80s were still a decade marked by where there was like a I was alarmed for like two months in the '80s, so maybe <laughs> maybe not at least from what I understand. Just a kid. What are you, twenty <laughs> two? But uh, uh, I mean, there is this seemingly. Correct me if I'm wrong, our older listeners. Yeah, uh, <laughs> live a year in a couple months. <laughs> but it's, it seemed like the United States was still very much on the same page about like, yep, Russia's a problem, Cold War's still thing. You know, we're, we're united on that, at least to some, you know, th- there seemed to be like a decent amount of national unity around that sort of stuff. Um, just with like, yeah, just the, the immense division um, without like any sort of, unifying national direction apparently Uh, i feel like there would be a nelson mandela to either side you know someone who the right sees as a dangerous terrorist person who's actually like they're actually not that bad like like this might actually maybe we should listen to them you know and i could see there being another you know a, a nelson mandela a communist or terrorist so to speak who's conservative who the who the the left would would see as like oh my gosh this is you know, terrifying echo what you said mike i i think that yeah the social media echo chamber dynamic um yeah only exacerbates the difficulty of finding like the truth right finding the true mandelas out there um that maybe uh uh are speaking truth to power are acting boldly in a way that's scary but also not hundred percent wrong i lost you on that last like couple sentences can you restate your last couple sentences mm, i guess like i well i agree with you that the echo chamber in the digital media landscape makes it difficult to see true like i guess that that makes it difficult to see any sort of truth out there um and therefore if you're not able to like discern what's true and false and what's conspiracy theory versus like reality it just makes it difficult to identify like a true Nelson Mandela figure. Like, and by that, I mean someone who is doing or saying things that are scary and pushing the limits, um, but also have a lot of truth. Yeah. But I would say that the true Nelson Mandela isn't even, and I'm just reiterating my previous point. The true Nelson Mandela isn't even on the internet. Well, maybe they're on the, they're using email. But they're not they're not on YouTube or Twitter because because they recognize because even okay, for example, someone like Jordan Peterson sure. where yeah, I I think I we all agree to pretty similar degrees, like yeah, speaking a lot of really important things that are pretty accurate, pretty true. But I would argue that over the past 10 years he has become more and more there's there seems to be more and more ego coming across the screen right and i i think that is because he's because he's on youtube right versus versus yeah the person who you know, the humble, the ordinary, maybe this was lead us into the hidden life conversation. Mm-hmm. The person who is not resisting 
Hitler metaphorically in order to get likes on their YouTube video, but rather because that is simply the right thing to do. Um, that they're that they are not on YouTube. Yeah, because they are busy tending the garden, quoting Saint Francis. There, give. <laughs> I think. Which, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the hidden life thing would be, I, yeah, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but, and I think this will tie into that as well, but I think something that makes it hard to have somebody say that today, at least in the U.S., is like, kind of, I think somebody mentioned it already, but like when, when Mandela said that, he wasn't saying like metaphorically, I'm prepared to die for this. Like there was an actual chance that he would get killed, right? So it was like an, it was like a legitimate, authentic like I know I could die and I'm still going to say it almost like baiting them in a way mm-hmm. where I feel like you can't say that. Like it just doesn't come off as strong. If I'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to die for insert the cause, but there's not an actual chance of me dying for it. It just seems like it takes, it just takes a lot of the, of the weight yeah, off of it. It's a cheap rhetorical tool, not a, a real possibility or. So let me connect that to the hidden life movie i think the thing is though that that there is the 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 metaphor and the literal i am prepared to die there's really not a big difference between those two things because the person who is willing to die when that you know for example i i believe i I think it was the columbine school shooting um, that there was a young woman who was asked, and if it wasn't Columbine, it was one of the other obscene number of school shootings, who was asked by the shooter, do you believe in God, right? And she said, yeah, and she was killed. She obviously would have never anticipated, like, oh, I'm going to practice dying to myself so that when the day comes to be to witness to Christ that I'm okay with being shot, right? No, that was never a possibility in her mind until, you know, 20 minutes before she died or something. The point is, is like that metaphorical disposition towards dying to oneself, that is what prepares you for as in Nelson Mandela's case, being prepared to literally die, right? So, I don't know. I mean, just the point is just sort of like, it seemed like an interesting, useful way to sort of clarify what you're getting at there, is that even those today who, reality is, yeah, we live in a great country, you have a very marginal fear, marginal um, reality of death to be concerned about. But that person who does metaphorically die to oneself every single day is going to be the person who literally dies to themselves when it counts so segue then into the hidden life that we keep referencing here true story uh three hour long terrence malick film where the story is told through these just very quiet moving scenes of the austrian landscape um True story of a gentleman named Franz Jägerstatter, something like that. Um, a guy, just local farmer, who resisted assenting to Hitler and his various doctrines, maybe late 1930s or so. He um, was encouraged by everyone, his wife, his mother-in-law, even his local bishop, to say, like, hey, just go along with Hitler, it's 
better, even if you don't believe it, whatever. And, um, yeah, sorry, Ross, he does die at the end, because obviously there would never have been a movie about him <laughs> if he did not die. Um, so, anyway, that's just a tidy little way to emphasize the metaphorical dying to oneself is what sets you up for those rare occasions when you do literally die to oneself. Yeah. And YouTube does not help you do that. I like the idea. I mean, yeah, I totally, I mean, I agree that, you know, dying to oneself daily prepares you to be able to make that jump if and when it would ever come. Um, hmm. Yeah, so I, I like that. It's kind of like the whole, I feel like it's the, I feel like we, at least I was on the train in college and I'm sure everybody else was of like the, you got to make your bed every day because just doing that simple task is going to help in so many numerous other ways as far as self-discipline and life and all of that. So yeah, I feel like I, I, I'm totally on board with that. I think part of why I kind of said that when he said it, like it could actually happen, kind of created that oh shoot moment was because at least in my own life, don't podcast scared, I kind of always wonder, like, would I actually do it, though? You know what I mean? Like, I can say, yeah, I would die for my faith. I would die for my kids. I'd die for my wife. I'd die for, at some point, I would stop. Wouldn't die for you guys. But um, at some, you know, but somewhere in there. But then I've just kind of wondered before, like, you know, like, I don't know. If you actually were ever in that situation, like, what would I actually do? And I, I feel like I'd say, like, I'd hope I would do the right thing. I don't know. Just, I, I've just, I've, I don't know. I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but I've played with that a, thought a little bit. Just what, how I would actually act if I were to, yeah, be there. Which I think maybe because of that hesitation I have or fear that I have that I wouldn't do the right thing makes it to me more impressive that, you know, someone like Nelson Mandela in a situation where he could actually be killed just like straight up said it. Like, yeah, I'm prepared to die. I would sort of imagine, <clears throat> you know, right now, like from the comfort of our podcasting studios, it's it's difficult to imagine dying for, literally dying for someone else. But, but you obviously think of so many people, the literally millions, maybe even several billion of uh, people who've existed from the beginning of time who have literally died for another person, whether it's their child or different loved one or a stranger. And there are, mo you know, imagine like when you're drinking your coffee in the morning, like the rest of the day just feels impossible. Like, how am I going to... I don't want to leave my couch. <laughs> but then you... <laughs> But you take those small steps to begin moving out into the world, like you go through your routine and blah, blah. And then, you know, you're doing something in the middle of the day with relatively little discomfort. Um, because you worked into it, you recognize the importance of going to work for the, you know, thousands of good reasons there are. And there's, there's a certain, like, peace that comes with that, right? Satisfaction. And I might suspect that for the person who, again, metaphorically dies to oneself every day, that when you get to that moment where, you know, Columbine school shooter asks, like, do you believe in God? That you've been training for this. And like, yeah, it's not, you're not going to be like, 
a bumbling goofball like oh yeah i believe in god like hey i'm willing that no it's like i can't lie you know and in those seconds before your life as you recognize is over it's like there's a certain peace and contentment that comes with that that that's sort of how i speculate a moment like that would happen where it's not this it's maybe maybe not this anxiety inducing thing if you've been living for this thing it is a very natural course of action that um that you have a certain capacity by grace to tolerate do you feel like that would apply to the end of life regardless like whether or not you know someone's asking you if you believe in god or you know fighting to end apartheid or some kind of epic cause you know if it's just i'm 87 years old my heart's failing like the end's coming well the 87 year old the thing is the 87 year old is a little bit more naturally cognizant that well yeah i'm old and life is over but if you're 17 years old and being shot potentially shot in high school like that's a lot fewer people are going to have peace with that right Okay, where are we going with this? So, I, oh, so okay, Matt, you you go. I had a thought, but you go. <laughs> well, I so I, I kind of had a, an idea. It might be a slight pivot, but I think it kind of weaves a few of these points together, right? So, um, the ability to die for to die for a cause or an idea obviously has to have all this other context behind it, right? And it has to be a story that justifies it and um, that would lead you to do that, right? To die for something. Um, and I think it's the same plot points that lead you to uh, varying degrees of violent acts against an evil, right? So I think to some degree, maybe that calculus is... I don't, maybe not calculus. I, I think maybe story, right? It adds, it's not like a moral calculus, but it adds to the moral story that you're living out. Um, Cause like, and, and I know we, uh, I don't know if we had mentioned Braveheart yet, but I would say maybe that's a similar plot in terms of like injustice and violent response, right? So everyone, at least I've yet to hear anyone say, oh yeah, Braveheart, he was totally immoral. And took way too many, you know what I mean? Like, but it's just a moving story. Hmm. He was a communist and, you know, like, terrorist. He was a communist terrorist, you know? Like, well, yeah, I'm sure Longshanks thought so. You know, but, uh, you know, but if, if, let's say Longshanks increased taxes on the Scottish by one barrel of cabbage per family or something, right? And Braveheart starts, you know, kicking ass and taking names. People are going to be like, what in the hell kind of story is this? This is ridiculous. You know what I mean? But he was literally, like, not even allowing, encouraging these English noblemen to just sleep with the wives of these Scottish people to breed them out. Like, that's terrible. (laughs) Holy freaking crap, man. And so, like, that's why... And he murdered his wife in front of him and whatever. So, but like that's why like the violence was justified right it's this totally death 
it's when someone's dealing death to you like that's that it's a measured like response right but i guess maybe where i'm going with this is i think uh when you when you're analyzing this story right and this is a really cool story um and when you're and when you're trying to like work out your own story of life and preparing yourself to die for for something worth dying for um yeah i guess just the uh i don't know maybe i'm I'm losing track here but just having just weaving weaving your story and like feeling it (laughs) but in a way that's tethered to reality i suppose feeling is just like whatever but um uh but yeah, just like reasonably feeling your story. <laughs> I like the Braveheart uh, reference. I um, maybe I get I get what you're saying. I yeah. get conceptually what you're saying. We just needed to hammer a few more stakes <laughs> in the ground along the way. It's okay. I right, I think well I think something else too. We want to make. Sure, I feel like I kind of want to make sure we close <laughs> the loop on Mandela's kind of life too. Right? He didn't end up life in prison. He ends up, he's in prison for 27 years, um, ends up getting released, and he um, he ends up becoming, like, the president of South Africa, right? And gave birth to Elon <laughs> Musk. That's, that's his son. <laughs> uh, so, but, I don't know, I think the, I wanted to touch just a little bit on, I guess, the prison years, we'll say, and... And I'm going to tie it into a little bit, so just bear with me for just one second. But I read an interesting thing. I hope there's a final bell it's question. Coming. Gonna I'm just going to weave. Here. I'm just going to weave everything together. Let's keep weaving, baby. Okay. But, weave your story. All right, so I've read an Art of Manliness. It's like one of their like short, like they send them out on Sunday or whatever, you know. The gospel according to Brett. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it talked about the difference between building and maintaining. Or maybe it was creating, and I don't know the words they used, but so it kind of talked about how in life, it's it's almost easier to when you're young and you're just always looking forward to that's what I'm gonna do someday I'll get married you know you're excited about these things someday I'll get this job, and then it's a whole different thing kind of once you're there to to maintain, right? When you don't have these new things you're chasing after, it's like. I am married. I do have kids. I do have a job. I do have a house. So all those things that for, you know, age 16 to 25, we dreamed about, you know, talking about a whiskey, living in, in each other's apartments, like all of a sudden we're there and it's like, kind of like, okay, now what do you do? You just stay there and you do it well. And that's kind of what he talked about in the post. But so I feel like the prison years, like I would just be interested to hear more and I didn't do a ton honestly like of research into like how Mandela obviously he obviously maintained his views he ended up becoming president you know in the 90s but it's like I'm just kind of picturing like the young fiery Mandela maybe like fighting for a cause and then all of a sudden it's like for 27 years you're in prison and it's maybe less of the dreamy revolution not revolution but like less of this epic heroic quest and more of a you know it's not very romantic to be in prison for 27 years yeah my understanding was that he was in a seven foot by seven foot cell 
They had no access to reading material, occasionally, maybe a little something. Uh, they worked in a quarry in pretty uh, inhospitable conditions. He was moved around a little bit. His later prison years were a little bit more of um, a little bit more uh, amenable circumstances, but I mean, still prison. There, there is one anecdote of being particularly polite. His lawyer was coming to see him about something, and as I read it, he explained to his lawyer, he's like, "Oh goodness." Prison has made me impolite or worse off. I forgot to introduce to you my prison guards or something, you know, here or there. So, I mean, I mean, just the point, just a little bit light on his um, prison exit. He did spend a lot of time in solitary confinement where there was, quote, no beginning and no end. So, anyway, I guess just the point is it does speak into just this profound fountain of energy and spirit that obviously came from his core right i mean this sort of segues nicely into some of those things that we um made some other notes about speak you know speaking frankly (laughs) there are yeah the there's a certain like a lot of um, community leaders, I think, is the most accurate and succinct way to put it. Like of, of something like Black Lives Matter. There is a lot to say for just how how the leaders present themselves. Where it seems like aesthetic, like style, seems like very very important. And shoot, where where is I exactly going with that? Ugh. <laughs> Just keep weaving. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I think it was this. The, the point is that, golly, they're sure. See, even though you know, as I was discussing discussing with Chris, there are there there is certainly something there to anti racism from an academic standpoint in Black Lives Matter. There's certainly something there, but. It is so profoundly obscured by individuals who treat it more as a brand. And I think that what you observe in, or what Nelson Mandela witnessed to in his 27 years of um, imprisonment was that this was not a brand for him. This is what he was dying for, you know, right. So... To connect points, yeah, understanding in more detail about what his time in prison was like helps clarify that that vision where this the spirit energy was coming from. It's coming from a story, man. <laughs> coming from a story. I think it's. I would have been doing pull ups in prison. <laughs> Guy. Gotta be able to do that 512 when I get out. <laughs> Punching holes in the concrete. <laughs> I don't know if we want to jump into this too much um, before we kind of close it up, but it kind of makes me think about when you were talking about, yeah, he kept he kept his fiery spirit. It made me think about, because we're talking about things you're willing to die for, right? So I remember when we were at, I was at Neighbor House in college and 
And the question posed, which I don't think I fully, I mean, I understood, but I didn't like really understand at the time. The question posed was like, would you die for your wife? Again, we're all 20 years old. We were like, yep, we would. And then the, like, the follow-up was like, would you give up Friday night? Or something like that. And like, there's kind of like a pause and people like, there's almost a sense sometimes of like, well, like, I mean. Wait, what do you mean? Like, would you give up going out on Friday night? Yeah, so like, life? would I skip okay. my yeah. podcast on Thursday or, you know, the next camping trip or something like that? Something that's like objectively much smaller than dying. But like, for some reason, people like pause before they answer the absolute, yeah, like, of course I would. Right. So to kind of like tie it in, I feel like from him, like, I guess it's just impressive that he was able to keep that, just the fiery spirit. So again, kind of like the don't podcast scared, which Matt, maybe you can speak to it some too. I don't know. So we lived together and I feel like spent pretty much years just talking about, you know, how we're challenging each other. Like, how can I be a better husband and all this stuff? But again, like that's when it's like uh, in the future, why am I less fired up to now that I actually am a husband, if that makes sense? trying to just speak to i guess how that seems very impressive to me and yeah kind of take it as a little bit of a personal challenge to do a little bit better definitely feels like final bell time what do we got all right final bell question and i think there's more to it than you can laugh about it it's the united states colonies well just the colonies at the time do you guys would you have fought for the american side or do you think you would have fought for the english Uh, I understand where you're going. I feel like that's too disconnected. <laughs> People are going to be like, I'm looking, would you rather die for a cause, get sent to prison your entire life? I feel I feel, I like that one more. I feel like it's a reasonable fallback option if we can't think of something better. I'm fine with that. Um, I also liked, this wasn't <laughs> Who's going to win though, the Elio? But, um, I would have fought for the Britain, by the way. <laughs> Does it does going to prison if you have a family affect? Okay, Mandela was on a second marriage, had numerous children. By the time he's arrested, do you think having a family changes how you would stand up in a situation like this? Um, I like that one actually more the most um, out of what's been presented so far. All right. Yeah, I think that works. Can you give me like a yeah. thumbs up? Make your editing easy. What, what do you mean? We're going to edit all that out, so I'm just going to start talking again with the final bell question. Yeah. Is it time for a final bell? Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Where are we? It's 15. One more round. There's no stopping this now. This is our round. Don't stop it now. We're starting. We don't stop. All your strength. All your power. All your love. Everything you've got. This is your whole life. Do it now. And we're back. Ross is going to bring us home. We've been going back and forth. Matt Matt went on a hike somewhere for a while. We had to go find him and bring him I'm back. I'm back, guys. I'm back. Derek, Derek is out in Kansas City. He, he walked past us once. He was just so interested in hearing what we were talking about. But Ross, we're we're back at your feet again. We're we're nestled around the fireplace. We're in our jammies. What's what's going to bring us out? All right. So Nelson Mandela, at the time of this speech, um, he was on his second marriage. He had kids, so he's he's got a family. 
Do you guys think having a family, being married, having children, would change how you would have to act in a situation like that? Would it change how you were willing to die, to go to prison, to respond in a in a situation like this? Matt's crying already. <laughs> no, I uh, no, that is tough. Um, no, that is tough. I would say on one hand, I think um, I would probably hold off on being on like the front lines of any sort of uh, violent exchange or resistance. Like, let's say there was, um, let's say things got a little past the sabotage stage. And, and started getting more towards guerrilla warfare and whatnot. Um, I would I would probably draw a line there to some degree in terms of my involvement if I had a, a, a wife and kids. Help out in whatever way I could, you know, slip them a few extra bills here or there, help with the effort, uh, pass on some secret messages, you know, maybe things like that. But uh, I think uh, I think there would be some justification in terms of avoiding um, the more aggressive or frontline type of role with the wife or kids. But I would say at the same time, if there was a situation where like your hand was forced, right? Like you were called to serve the enemy and like you had to respond to that, you, you know, either affirmative or negative, um, kind of like the Franz Jägerstater situation. I think in that situation, it would be all the more important to like be willing to die or go to prison or whatever. You want your wife to have married a good man, you know, and like, even if it's, uh, yeah, I feel like just backing down and violating your conscience in that regard would uh, kind of defeat, defeat the whole purpose of your marriage, you know, uh, in terms of like being a good man for being the man you would want your wife to marry. <laughs> um I th I think I think that statement sets up a really useful analogy or metaphor. You know, imagine you have someone whom you believe is a great friend to you, right? You talk about different things and do different things uh, with them, um, but then they betray you, or they just they just really mess up in some really significant way. And it just, like, completely, utterly compromises how you perceive them. And do you struggle to have that same sense and impetus for intimacy that you did before, right? It's just one thing. And I think that also speaks to this reality that, like, life is not just purely economics, right? It's not this... Well, you have a thousand good experiences. If you have one bad one, like, oh, you're still ahead. Like, no, there are, there is qualitative, there is metaphysical attributes to experiences and events. And that's because they are tethered in some sort of mysterious way to this higher plane of living. I, I think it'd be harder, like emotionally, but yeah, I mean, I think I agree with everything you're saying. 
totally agree that you would want to be maybe more, I don't know if prudence the white word, but. Okay, maybe, can can I give you some fodder? Okay, so let's put yourself in Franz's situation. So now you've been, you've been called. You have to go and sign this paper to say that you are aligning yourself with Hitler or not. And this is it. Like, you've basically made your decision, and you um, have to say your goodbyes to the kids and Julie. What does that conversation look like? What's that exact language that you might imagine? And it's right now. There's not, you know, it's not in 15 years. I'm trying to, like, put Julie's face on yours right now to make it more real, but... It's harder. The beard's throwing me off. Um, if I'm in that situation where I'm about to leave to be killed, what do you say? Something to the effect of, I love you. I don't, I mean, I don't know if there's words. Just how do you, how, what do you, I don't even know if there are like, I don't know how you go about trying. I feel like anything I do to try to articulate it is just going to fall so far short that I don't even want to try. Mm. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll play with it that just, question. It was going to be like inauthentic. I... I was like, picture myself in a movie. Like, I love you. They'll get it when they're older. I'm in my Arnold voice. <laughs> and it's just like, it just is <laughs> so lame. Um, like, what did he say in the movie? I've never seen the movie. I'd kiss her for sure. <laughs> I don't remember. I, mean, I, I feel like there were several <laughs> smaller dialogues. It wasn't like this one big definitive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to rewatch the movie to, to see exactly. Yeah, because there's several letters he writes from prison. and. Well, I think to put a little bit extra like texture to Matt's answer, I think, you know, because there are a lot of things that we observe in the world is like oh gosh that's that's so bad i'm not i'm not doing enough to you know resolve this evil or something right and there's obviously a lot of like guilt and and shame attached to that sort of um uh experience internal experience of things but franz's situation is you know, like Madden, like has come up already. It's a really, really profound, since it is a true story, it is a really profound testament to the power of being faithful to your vocation, right? Like, okay, there was this bishop in the movie, too, who probably was like at least fairly sincere um, in his desire to be a priest. But in reality, he's he's the bad guy in this story. You know, he majorly failed in con. You know, he obviously had all this influence and all these other um, all this other stuff attached to influence. But but Franz is the hero in the story. You know, to have a Terrence Malick film about you quoting T.S. Eliot which goes something like half of the world's good is owed to people lying in unmarked unvisited graves something like that is a quote that appears at the end of the film like that 
that's it. Like there's there's just no no getting around the power of Franz's faithfulness to his vocation there. Um, and yeah, he wasn't yeah he wasn't on the front lines. Obviously, you know, trying to shove some lead up Hitler's butt. He just simply he farmed and then. And then once the time came to either sign his name or not, you know, he he knew he knew what he had to do. In the film, was his wife at all reserved about him doing what he did? Oh yeah, she was oh, against so it. So she, because I don't know if she was wholesale against it. Was she? The reason I ask, and I haven't seen the movie, like I, I'm pretty sure she was I, against. It. Definitely not encouraging. Her mother-in-law, or so her mother, his mother-in-law was very much against it. Yeah, I want right. to say that yeah. she like was understanding though, like she didn't like it. But I, I don't know. really don't think so. Hmm. Maybe yeah, maybe something a little more new. Definitely not encouraging. Yeah, like, I don't. I just feel like that would also be a super hard place to be in the sense of like, like you hear about like when people like what's that movie Silence with Liam Neeson, and like and oh, he sure. and he does yeah. like he renounces the faith right, and I feel like you hear, I feel like that would be like a common thing a lot of people would say would be like just say it you don't have to mean it which i'm I'm assuming people said in the movie to him like just sign it you Mm -hmm. um yeah but like just like the role of her i feel like would be a bit like i don't know if i'd say equally as hard hard in a different way but like to let him go like let him yeah let him go knowing that you know what he's leaving behind but that there, there's a certain. I've so I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I think, as far as it goes with her, man, I think this is the best word for it. You guys might disagree, but there's a certain like quality of agnosticism. I think that's really important for life, where it's and and I think agnosticism in the sense and I I can think of like different language expressed by Christ in the Gospels that like reflects this but I'm using agnosticism in a slightly like just different sense than it usually is whereas I don't you can just never be certain of how things are going to turn out right it's so easy I can think of different people who like this is this is the life plan and this is how things are gonna go but there's a certain value to agnosticism where it's like i don't know i don't know how things are gonna turn out um it reminds me of uh matt's uh speech selection uh speeches about loss or speeches by losers where it sort of opens up by the uh um Dr. Khalifi, mm-hmm. his wife, they're lying in bed shortly after Paul's diagnosis, and they say somehow together, like, everything's going to be fine, but we don't know what fine is. Like, yeah, that's that's sort of the heart of a true, I'd say, Christian agnosticism, where it's like, yeah, I mean, Christ, Christ's will will play out. I don't know how that's going to be. It's not going to be in like necessarily this goofy sort of everything will be fine. You know, like what movie, the Lego movie, everything will be fine, but everything will be fine. 
Um, yeah, that's, I think, sort of a Christian agnosticism that's sort of due for uh, Franz's wife there. Because, yeah, what she wanted was... Well, anyone would want, you know, is another 30 or 40 years of uh, marriage, you know, with their husband that they married on this happy day some years ago and things playing now like Hitler like what come on like Hitler's freaking 300 miles away or however far he is like come on he doesn't have anything to do with us just get this over with quick and we can be back on with our lives but yeah Christian Christian agnosticism you heard it here first <laughs> I feel like the only way to actually have that would be like to have a strong like trust in God's providence if you if you didn't if you if you didn't yeah, have that yeah, yeah then it seems like yeah it may providence is is kind of a good different different word for it I I think providence agnosticism that might capture it better than there's been some man Matt Fred God bless his soul I think he's he's had on some better um, people recently a couple of them stick out that's on this point. Um, actually, actually one, I sort of like this one better. This is actually the Michael Shermer guy, um, who's the atheist, um, neuroscientist. He had on a gentleman who is Christian, a Christian existentialist, and he was an expert in conspiracy theories, um, as like a sociological phenomenon. And what he remarked is this. <clears throat> this is pretty much a verbatim quote uh, from the Christian existentialist. He said, Belief in conspiracy theories is belief that the de that God does not exist and the devil is almighty. And, man, that's... Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it just gets to the heart of the fact that it's just, that is just the other conspiracy theory it's like the other opposite of providence it's almost it's they're almost like the perfect opposite of the hypothetical franz's wife who's like don't sign the thing because i am psychologically invested in 30 more great years of marriage with you it's almost like the perfect opposite sort of thing one version of that is God is going to make everything perfect, and the other version is, practically speaking, there is no God. The devil is in control. What do we got going on next episode? Uh, is it me or Landon? You. You. Oh. <laughs> Something good. Alright, you guys just wait. Alright, something um, good coming in three weeks. Something good three weeks from now. Cool. It's been a great episode. Thanks for drinking. And thinking. With us. Hey, be safe out there, all right? Cue the music. Dead ends come and go. Look toward the horizon. Up ahead you'll find a peace of mind. Relief from the trying. Wrecked in a ditch, had to ask forgiveness Dead ends come and go, look toward the horizon All their old stories
So how so how old is Joseph now? Four months, a little over four months. Four months. Do you feel like uh, you guys have a groove? Oh yeah. With uh, yeah. going from three to four now. Three to four honestly wasn't hard, other than the fact that we had two in school. Sure. And once we got that under control, and now the school's out, it's like yeah, it's fine. Um. Gotta warn you, nice. one to two was the hard jump. That's no, that's what I've yeah, that's what I've heard. That's what I'm anticipating. I mean, zero to so. one is hard, <laughs> and then one to two is like, oh, this is really hard. Yeah. And then from there on out, it's like, eh, it's harder, but like much incrementally much less harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, less than a month. Is that it? Yeah, it seems like less than a you month. You guys have been pregnant for eighteen months. <laughs> <laughs> Baby's gonna be huge. <laughs> gonna give birth to a man. <laughs> no, a Schultz. A Schultz. 